a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on, why it's happening and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. I know you might be wondering why you're hearing a different voice than usual and the reason for that is that this week we're saying goodbye to Keith's co-host, Kate Mack, as she moves on to a new role in other projects. A massive thank you, Kate for all your work. My name is Amy Goggins. I'm a journalist and news editor here at Listener. I'll be jumping in for this episode. Keith, today we're looking at something called hard power, an interesting topic. Tell me exactly, what does that mean? So hard power is the power to force people to do something. So it's a contrast between soft power. So the reason why hard power is attracting a lot of attention at the moment is because the Americans have failed with the use of hard power, military power, in uh, Afghanistan and prior to that, Iraq and going even further back into Vietnam. So this is an article that I've come across by Brigadier Salim Kamar, but uh, who is with the uh, Future Directions Institute. And Future Directions is um, based in Perth near the university. I have to declare that I'm also an FDI person as well. And so I'm going to sound rather biased when I say they publish good material, but they do publish good material. And this article, which has appeared in the last few days on the limits of hard power, is looking at the problem for the United States that America has used military power, hard power, over 200 times since the end of the Cold War. So that's uh, since 1991. And yet when you look at the record, they've all been failures. So you've got, obviously, Afghanistan, which is the one that's causing the grief at the moment, but also Iraq, Syria, Libya. Remember, they destroyed Libya. And Libya, uh, which was controlled by Colonel Gaddafi, who was a very brutal dictator, prevented migration from Libya into Europe. Now that he's been removed from power, people have been able to use Libya as a corridor through which to travel from Africa into Europe. And so the destruction of Libya a decade ago has continued to echo through European politics as we have hundreds of thousands of people seeking to leave the African continent and are travelling through Libya uh, in order to get to Europe. Europe technically begins just off the Libyan coast because um, there's the island of, of Lampedusa, which is actually controlled by Italy. So you get into Italy and you're into Europe. So the Americans have caused no end of chaos with this use of what's called hard power. So that's the, the military power. Now, I think it's, it's worthwhile to contrast that with soft power. So soft power is the power of attraction. Hard power, do as I say or I'll kill you. Soft power is the power of attraction. So it's the importance of diplomacy, culture, history, and Great Britain is a great example of this. Great Britain has very limited hard power, but is great when it comes to soft power because um, with soft power, you have Shakespeare, cricket, the BBC. These are all components that make Britain an attractive country. It's not a hard power country. It used to be, but at the moment, um, it, it's certainly not, and I don't think it's ever going to return to being a big 
hard power country, but it is certainly a great soft power country. When you've got, for example, uh, youngsters overseas who want to study at Oxford or Cambridge, that's all part of the soft power, attractive power that the uh, British have got. And it's interesting, there was a survey done earlier uh, this year of the top 10 countries that exercise soft power. It's an interesting lineup, beginning with Germany, Japan, the United Kingdom, thank the royal family for that, and Shakespeare and the BBC and Oxford, etc. Canada, Switzerland, the United States. For that, you have to thank Hollywood and Harvard and the American music industry, etc. France, China, Sweden, and number 10, Australia. We are number 10 in the world. There are about 200 countries, and we come in at number 10 when it comes to soft power. And that is reflected, without the COVID, with the number of people who, for example, want to visit us as a tourist attraction or who want to come here to study. So that's soft power. And clearly, there are countries that are doing very well out of soft power. And so soft power, this power of attraction, is very significant. And so Joseph Nye at Harvard was the guy who decades ago created this distinction between hard power and soft power. And as as I've said, the United States is awful at hard power, but when you look at soft power, the United States does very well, partly because of Joseph Nye's university, Harvard. People like to study at Harvard. In international education terms, there's a rivalry between Harvard and Oxford. So that shows the soft power of the United States. So this uh, study from Future Directions in Perth, Future Directions International, the article written by Brigadier Salim Kamar Butt, just published uh, by the FDI, Future Directions International in Perth, is looking at the way in which America really ought to give up on all of its hard power aspirations. In other words, that it needs to recognise that it gets involved in a lot of countries but often with very bad results. So the brigadier, who's from Pakistan, is someone who's in effect warning, look, the Americans shouldn't rely so heavily upon military force, but at the same time, they are very good at soft power. Hollywood, Harvard, New York as a tourist attraction, Big Apple, they're all soft power. But uh, don't try to influence people via the hard power. Americans fail at that. So, Keith, why have they failed? Why aren't they getting hard power right if they can get <laughs> soft power so right? Well, the, fascinating question. I think the, the reason would be that there are limits to military power. If you look back since 1945 at the number of times in which the Americans have been involved, remember this article just simply surveys since 1991, but I'm going to go back all the way to 1945. So it's the end of World War II. And I think there are only four occasions when American hard power actually worked well. And they're, they're all small, local, conventional operations. So um, you've got the invasion of Grenada, which is in the Americas. Some people have difficulty finding these places on maps, I've got to say. You've got Grenada. Um, you've got uh, Bosnia and the Kosovo crisis. So that was President Clinton, their invasion of Grenada to get rid of a, a alleged communist leader. That, that was done in the Reagan administration. Then you have the liberation of Kuwait by George Bush Sr. So it's done in 1990, 1991. Uh, remember, he, he got the Iraqi troops out of Kuwait but didn't go any further, which was a very sensible policy. 
And then number four, you have um, the Kosovo War, etc. So there are really only four occasions out of the hundreds of occasions in which Americans have used force where you can say quite explicitly, yep, the Americans did very well with that operation. Whether or not you approve of it, of course, is another matter, but clearly they, they did well. Oh, the other one I should mention is Panama. They grabbed uh, the Panama dictator, Noriega, who used to be on the CIA payroll and then went rogue. And so uh, they had to send the American troops in to get him because he was no longer following American instructions. So that was the, the fourth operation. So they are operations that worked well, but then you look around the more famous operations in which the Americans were involved, such as Vietnam, and then uh, more recently you've got Iraq, 2003, and you've got, of course, Afghanistan, which was America's longest war, which finished only a few weeks ago. For the American involvement, that is, the war continues, but no longer with American involvement so much. You know, th these have been disastrous operations because they're guerrilla struggles. And so you've got this incredibly expensive military machine, but it doesn't work in the jungles, doesn't work uh, in crowded urban environments. And so the Americans do all right if it's going to be a small conventional warfare. But most warfare nowadays is guerrilla. It's not conventional. There's no return to World War One or World War Two with large fighting formations over the Great Northern Plain of Europe, for example. You can't do that anyway. It's built up. In the old days, it was wide and clear so you could send your tanks right the way across Europe. You can't do that now. You'll be running into housing estates. So that era has gone. So that era of conventional warfare is on the way out. And increasingly, warfare is now small scale. It's guerrilla or terrorist, depending on, or freedom fighters, depending on, you know, you have the same person who goes through similar roles. So guerrilla means small fighter in formal fighting. Uh, if you approve of them, they're a freedom fighter, such as the Mujahideen. So the Americans supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And then when the, when the Mujahideen, having got rid of the Soviets, turned on the Americans, they then moved into the third category, which is that of terrorists, such as Osama bin Laden. So the era of warfare has changed. And we've got to recognise now the limits of hard power. And that's what the brigadier is saying, which is interesting. Remember, this guy is a brigadier, but even he is saying, well, perhaps there are limits to what you can actually do with hard power. And so a new era of warfare is evolving. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. I'm Amy Goggins, and before we left, we were talking all about, Keith, hard power, what it's about forcing people to do something and, I guess, really America's use of it. Keith, what could the US be doing differently? Well, I think that um, the implication really is that the Americans move from hard power to soft power. In other words, recognise that in fact there are limits to what you can do with the military-industrial complex. Now, this is an incredibly politically sensitive issue because obviously the military-industrial complex runs the United States. doesn't matter who's in power. They're the ones who, with the real military influence. And this was a phrase that uh, President Eisenhower coined, what are we, 1961, that's 50 years ago, um, when he warned, uh, sorry, 60 years ago, golly, um, he warned because he had seen as a, a career soldier how much the United States had changed. So the United States had changed um, from having a very small army 
they'd already had a large standing army when King George III was running the 13 colonies. So they said, we're never going to have a large standing army again because they will oppress the people and instead we'll give everybody the right to bear arms, which is why in America you have this right to bear arms because it, it prevents anybody from thinking about invading America because they'll come up against a nation that's ready to fire back at you. So America continued to have small military forces, except, of course, for the tragic civil war between 1861 and 1865. But from the 1780s all the way through until 1940, the army was small. And, in fact, as recently as 1940, the army of Greece was larger than the army of the United States. And so Dwight Eisenhower had spent most of his life as a soldier. At the very end, uh, he became president of the United States for eight years. But he looked back over his life and just saw how much things had changed within his lifetime and how important the military had become and also the, the manufacturing component of the military. So although there was no longer the huge standing army that the Americans had had in World War II, it's still a big army, but it's not the large standing army which they mobilised in World War II. But increasingly, things are much more manufactured. You've got tanks and aircraft rather than relying on a lot of soldiers on the ground. And he was saying, look, there's a real problem because the American economy is being distorted by this military-industrial complex. Our job is to make television sets or automobiles And instead, a lot of our genius is actually going into guided missiles and aircraft, tanks, etc. So in his what's called the final address to Congress, he issued this warning about the military-industrial complex and the power that it has in American politics, uh, which, as I say, he'd seen changed in his own lifetime and saw how important the military-industrial complex had been uh, since 1945, uh, the end of World War II. And the president simply warned fellow Americans, look, we're distorting our economy. We're putting too many resources into this military-industrial complex. We've got to find ways of trying to cut it back, which is amazing. But here you have another ex-soldier, another retired soldier, a bit like the author of this article from Future Directions International. Here you've got ex-president Eisenhower, an ex-general, warning about military power. And so... When we say we've got to cut back on the hard power, you can imagine immediately, you know, the big corporations saying, no, there, there will always be problems. And, of course, what we're doing at the moment is clearing the decks ready for a war against China. And so, that you know, with this new, particularly in our case, this new agreement, AUKUS, which is Australia, UK and the United States. Now, what they could do differently by implication of this article is just simply to boost the soft power, make America more of a tourist attraction, Um, go back to being a friendly American country. America had started out as a soft power country. It relied on its power of example rather than the example of power. And so they were able to say, look, we in America, this is before World War II, we have grown rapidly, which is true. We've industrialised very rapidly. At the cost, let me just say, of the you know, uh, slavery and also wiping out some of the indigenous people. But they could say, look, we have grown rapidly. We have transformed North America. And that is soft power. Follow our example. And, And so this is a really, for me, a very interesting time for America. The troops are home from Afghanistan. There's a lot of soul searching about Afghanistan. If they're going to reply to China, which is clearly the rising power, I don't doubt that for a moment. 
if they're going to reply to China, are they going to try to do it on the battlefield? Are we going to have a war in our corner of the world? Or can they somehow beat China through the race of, of artificial intelligence, for example, AI? Can they do it by peaceful means, by economic means? Remember, that's how America came to global dominance in the first place, not because of military power, but because of the power of example, that it was a flourishing democracy. It had a great economy. It was very attractive for migrants coming in from overseas. And so, in a sense, America could go back to being a soft power country. Keith, is hard power just seen as a quick fix? Do countries just go to hard power just because it's the easiest option? Absolutely. Yep, mm. it is the easiest option. Mm. And use of violence, it's a bit like trying to raise a child. You raise a child by continuing to smack the child mm, or right. do you find a more sophisticated way of trying to discipline the child? Absolutely. So, yes, the, the hard power is, is what comes naturally to us. You know, there is this tendency now to talk about fast thinking and slow thinking. Fast thinking clearly is hard power. In other words, you respond automatically because deep down in our brains, and remember our brains are thousands of years old, they were designed in the um, wild area of East Africa. And every time you saw a, a rustle of a tree or something, you had to work out, is that a predator coming for me or is it a prey that I could eat? So there is this element of very quick response. And I think hard power comes into that uh, way of thinking. Now, of course, we're no longer living on the African veldt. Uh, we're no longer worried about lions creeping up and <laughs> catching us. Uh, we, you don't stand any chance of that in Sydney. And so we really ought to be going after the thinking slow way, more reflective, being more careful about how we operate. And the implication is that you therefore need more soft power to try to win people over because clearly the American example, and, you know, this brigadier has written about the, the American example. I might also say the Soviet Union. Uh, he doesn't touch on the Soviet Union, but if you look back at the Soviet Union, that also is a history of the failure of hard power. I travelled extensively behind the Iron Curtain in the old days, and I could tell the resentment that the East Germans or the Poles felt for the Russians. There was never any great desire to go to study in Moscow, for example. If you had a choice, you'd go to Oxford or Harvard. But instead, you, you if you went to Moscow, it's because you were a career apparatchik, and so you're looking at your future career. But there was no great loyalty towards the Soviet Union. And then as things started to fall apart in the late 1980s, they fell apart at a, at a very quick rate, simply because the Soviet Union had not been able to inspire any great feeling of attractiveness for its way of life. If anything, it was the West that had the soft power. For me, one of the great examples was the way in which if you, when you travelled, particularly in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, the television aerials were pointed towards the West because they were wanting to pick up West German television. And if you had your aerials and they were trying to pick up those TV programmes, they didn't want to watch Russian programmes, they didn't watch their own uh, propaganda-filled East German or Polish programmes. They wanted to pick up the Western programmes. And they how want... did they go? Did uh, they, were they able to pick them up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and whenever I travelled in Eastern Europe, I took with me jars of coffee and jeans <laughs> as presents. Wow. Uh, that's soft power. Yeah. Right? It's consumerism. Yep. It's, and it's the power of attraction. Mm. And and what the, the brigadier in writing this article in effect is implying is the Americans can do a lot more through soft power and winning attraction of people uh, rather than relying on hard power. Hard power 
as we've seen with the tragedy in Afghanistan, uh, which will continue. Okay, the Americans have pulled out, but we will continue to see the suffering of ordinary people in Afghanistan. 20 years of American involvement, 20 years of American high power really has not achieved very much. But if America were now to say we will concentrate far more on soft power, then it might make for a better world. Absolutely. Well said, Keith. And I think I'd be won over by jeans and coffee as well. (laughs) (laughs) That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. Make sure you tune in next week where we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on. Listener.